We're going to transition um, into the sermon. Thank you so much. I know a number of you came just to support Mason, and I just want to say thank you to you. Um, I, I believe that in the, in the um, context of church and Christian community, um, that we are at our best, um, that young people are discipled. I think about it a lot with the kids here at Cornerstone. I often think about who they will be as adults and the decisions that they make, which reminds me I'm supposed to dismiss the kids. And um, so kids, you, you can be dismissed to your classes. Um, we often pray as they're dismissed that, that God would use that time. Look at the, oh my goodness, this place about emptied out right there. <laughs> Usually we're standing, we don't get to see like the visual of that. And, um, and we're just so blessed uh, here at Cornerstone to have a lot of kids and and I think it would just be appropriate um, as we sort of transition the message that we would also pray for the kids and pray for the kids' workers um, before we open the Word. So would you just bow your heads with me and, and let's pray together. Lord, um, I just want to bow before you this morning in just a deep sense of, of reverence and appreciation for who you are and what you are doing in our lives. Um, God, thank you. Thank you again for Mason and his declaration of faith. Thank you for the kids and, um, and God, I do pray for each one of them, God, that even as they go to their classes right now, that as their teachers um, tell, the, tell the story, the old stories, um, that they would be new stories and that they'd be new in their hearts. God, that you would even be using these moments on Sunday mornings to shape and mold their hearts for you. God, that you would raise up an army of men and women who walk with integrity and with a deep faith before you. Um, Lord, be with us as we open your word, um, stir our hearts as only you can, and uh, God, I'm just so aware of our need of you. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who is discouraged, um, pray that you would encourage their hearts, that you would help them to find fresh energy and fresh courage. And Lord, um, again, we're just so thankful, and, uh, and we praise you, and we give it all to you in the name of Jesus, amen. I didn't really introduce myself. My name is Floyd, and I do the, I do the majority of the preaching and teaching here. Um, and I am grateful that you've joined us this morning. If you're watching online, thank you for joining us there, too. We are working our way through the book of Hebrews, as um, Marshall alluded to. We're in Hebrews chapter 11. We are on Sunday two of four Sundays in this chapter. So we're going to take verses 8 to 16 this Sunday. I've told this story before here at Cornerstone, maybe a couple times, but I always think of this story when I read verses like Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. Back in 2003, I had been recently ordained, and, and the church I was with made it possible because I hadn't gone through seminary to get some training, some formal training in theology and and biblical studies and so forth. And so um, went to a, a school in Pennsylvania for six weeks, and it was not a time of fi financial prosperity in our, in our family. In fact, it was a time of poverty. I remember while we were at school in Pennsylvania, there were a number of nights where we would take the kids to the McDonald's playland, because it was the dead of winter, and Elaine and I would share a cup of coffee because that was what we could afford. 
And we only bought the coffee because it justified our existence at the McDonald's Playland. <laughs> we came home. We had been gone for over six weeks, and, and we came home in the middle of a good old-fashioned Midwest blizzard. And as we were coming across Interstate 80, that it, you know, I think it got dark somewhere around Indiana, and we knew the forecast that it was going to continue getting worse and worse as we headed west, and we were coming across Illinois, and it was starting to rain, and then the rain turned into snow, and, and then it started turning into a lot of snow, and, and it was not only getting worse by the mile, but it was also getting later by the minute. And we hit the Quad Cities somewhere around midnight. My dad had called, and he said, I talked to your father-in-law, and he says, we agreed we would pay for a motel room if you would stop and just spend the night so that you're not out on the roads. And I, I didn't want to spend the night somewhere else. I just wanted to be at home, and I just wanted to get home. And we talked about it, and we're driving along, and we're like, do we stop? And we're like, no, we can, we, we can probably do this. I mean, you know, this minivan will go anywhere, you know? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> we were coming around 280 down the south edge of the Quad Cities, and I remember at one point we literally stopped in the middle of the interstate to try and figure out where the center line was at. I got out and was brushing the snow away. I don't know what I thought, would that, how that was going to help, because I'm gonna, you know, I drive 10 feet, I can't see it. Um, but it made me feel better about what I knew, you know, and, and, um, and it just got worse and worse, and, and you know, by, by that time, it's, you know, the time we hit Riverside, it was about 1.30 in the morning, and, and um, we just about couldn't make it through some of the drifts. You know, we were getting a run to make it through those snow drifts. There's no one else out. We were out there all by ourselves. And I vividly remember, you know, hitting the four-way stop here in Kelowna, the Highway 1 and 22 intersection, and looking over at the motel and looking at Elaine and said, should we stop at a motel there? <laughs> and and, um, and we, we miraculously made it to our home, and, you know, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. You couldn't even tell what color our minivan was anymore because it was so plastered and covered with snow and ice. And there we were in the middle of the night, and we pulled into home. And <laughs> I get emotional talking about it because I, I, in that moment, I looked at my wife as we were unpacking the van, and I said, do you think this is what it's going to feel like when we get to heaven? Where the journey was difficult, um, uncertain, and had lots of danger. Um, but then there's that moment where we step into our homeland, and the journey is over, and it's safe. And, and I've thought about that story many, many times as an illustration of, of what it is like sometimes to live in a world that is full of difficulty and brokenness at times. But there's always the knowledge for the child of God that this is not home. And we haven't gotten there yet. And we may be fighting some snowdrifts, but we're not home. And I think that's a little bit of the idea that the writer of Hebrews is pointing, maybe a lot of the idea that the writer of Hebrews is pointing to as he talks about these people of faith. We're in Hebrews chapter 11, and if you know 
um, Hebrews 11, you know that it is those heroes of faith that are pointed to. This morning, we want to look at Abraham and Sarah. If We're going to pick it up in verse 8 of Hebrews 11. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there and follow along. And I want to read from verse 8 to 16. Hebrews 11, 8, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you look at this story of Abraham, and then it talks about Isaac and Jacob, they lived in tents. And if you know the story, you go back into Genesis and you read it, God had come to Abraham and he was living up in an, in an area north um, of what is modern-day Israel, and God told Abraham to just go. He didn't tell Abraham where all he was going to wind up at. And he invites him to just go out and to leave. And Abraham spent his life living in tents, moving from one place to the other until he got down to the land that God had promised to him. But it takes that story of the Old Testament and it invites us to a story that is a reality for us today and that we are also traveling through our lives, that God is leading us through the days of our lives, even into places that we don't even know for sure where we're going to end up at. And it takes that promise of a land for Abraham and gives that as a picture of the promise of a homeland for you and I and for the, right, for the readers of the, the Hebrew letter. And that promise of a better city, of a better country, is what propelled Abraham forward, and he kept going. Because he desired it, because he longed for it. I read that last section of verses, and I read about how that they longed for a place, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. And that there is this ongoing desire and this longing for something that is perfect and that is right and the way that it should be and the way that we know it was meant to be. But we never really get there on this earth, do we? It's like we go through our lives with all of these unmet desires, the longing for perfect relationships, and yet none of them are. The longing for prosperity, and yet there's always something else that we want. 
the longing for perfect health, and yet these bodies just keep getting older and more frail. And we, all, we have all these longings that are unmet here, and so did they. And like them, we take those desires and those longings, and we have to do something with them. C.S. Lewis said, there's two ways to do it wrong and one way to do it right. The one way to do it wrong is to be the fool and to constantly think that if I just had one more experience, one more trip, or maybe a different spouse, or more money, or whatever, that my desires would then be met. And he says, that's the way of the fool. He says, or you can go the way of the cynic, which is where most of us end up at, or many people end up, and just to say, well, you know what, this world is just the way it is, and things just don't work out, and I, I'm just probably not ever going to see my life work out the way that I thought it was going to. I mean, when I was young, I had all these cool visions of who I would be as an adult, and now I'm not that. I mean, I thought I would, you know, probably be a cowboy on the open range, and I'm not. And so something sort of settles in our hearts that becomes kind of cynical and hard. And this reality of unmet desires is met with cynicism at times and saying, well, maybe this is just as good as it gets. C.S. Lewis says there's a much more Christian way to see unmet desires, and I think that's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about here, where he talks about that they desired a better country, and it's just understanding that our desires are made to point us to another reality, and that they are communicating something to us by our Creator God. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And that's what you and I are supposed to be doing with those longings and desires that are unmet. Because even in the best of moments, there's this longing for it never to stop. You know which moments I'm talking about, right? Like the moment when it's a beautiful summer evening and kids are playing in the yard and for once everybody's getting along and, and you know, the... We have cold drinks on hot days and hot drinks on cold days, finally. Food is good. We're with friends. There's usually a fire. And it's like those moments where you just want to hit the pause button on life and you want to say, stop right here. This is the way it was meant to be. Or for me, I'm you know, on a lake and the, glass, and the, and the water is calm as glass. And you know, it's a summer evening and the fish are biting, and I'm where I want to be. I'm on the water, and I just want to hit the pause button and say, I was made to live like this. I was made to live in this kind of a scenario. Or I'm standing in a stream, and the trout are rising, and, and they're hungry, and they're hitting everything you put in front of them. I'm like, I was made to live like this. But then it ends, and then it stops, and we go back to real life. And even in our best moments, we long for a day where it will not end. We long for a perfect country where the, the joy and the adventure and the beauty just go on and on and on. And that's what we long for. And the fact that we have the longing is an indicator that it is actually real and that it exists. 
and that there is a physical heaven that exists and that is the homeland for the believer. I take the Bible very literally. If you are, spend much time here at Cornerstone, you know that. I believe that there is a literal hell for those who have rejected God. I believe that there is a literal physical heaven for those who have received him as their Savior. And so he goes to these examples of people who walk by faith looking for the homeland ahead of them. He talks about Abraham as that first one who God had prepared a city for. And that's the last thing that he says is that God has prepared a city for them. And I want to talk a little bit about who God has prepared a city for. We talk about Abraham, his obedient action. He took action. God has prepared a city for those who take action in obedience. When Abraham was there with all of his family and friends, and he's in a place that is normal and familiar to him, and there is no, under, or no knowledge or concept of a world outside of his home area. That's where his family is. And it's in that context that God goes to him and he says, Abraham, I want you to take your wife and, and I want you to take your servants and I want you to just go out into a land. And he says, and Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now that would have been a wonderful promise with the exception of one thing. Abraham didn't have any children. And so it raises the question, how is this going to happen? How is God going to create this great nation out of a man, who is, a man and woman who are childless and who are unable to have children? Because by then they had figured that out. Abraham, it says, I mean, he doesn't question God. He doesn't get into an argument with God. You know, okay, Lord, um, RVs have not been invented yet. Could you wait until... You know, northern Indiana figures out how to build RVs, and, and then, then I'll go so that this would be a lot better. I think Sarah would be a lot happier if we weren't traveling on camels and mules and sleeping in tents. I like to camp. One of the things I discovered after I was married was that camping in a tent is not enjoyed by all. <laughs> Even for one night or two. There's no bathroom, there's no running water, there, you know. And I thought that was just how you camped. Imagine, guys, imagine going to your wife and saying, well, I heard from God today about what we're supposed to do. We're going to go on a camping trip. And the camping trip's going to last probably the rest of our lives. We're going to live in a tent. From here on out. You imagine that conversation? That'd be a doozy. And Abraham just did it. He just went. He took action. Because you can mark the faith of a person by their response to God when he says, do this. And Romans chapter 4 also goes back to the story of Abraham. And it says that Abraham's faith was accounted to him as righteousness and that he was considered righteous by God because of his faith, not because of his works, not because he had earned it, but because he simply trusted God. 
In fact, Romans 4 goes on to unpack that a little bit, and it talks about this sign of circumcision that identified the people of God from the, from the time of Abraham on. And it says that Abraham was not first circumcised and then had faith. It says he had faith, and then he was circumcised. In other words, first he believed, and then he took action. You ever heard someone say, first we believe, and then we see? That's true. He believed God, and he took him in his word. And then he began to see the character and the nature of God and the call of God on his life, and he just went forward in obedience, and he obeyed God, and he took him at his word. And I, I don't know what all that looks like for all of us. I think sometimes we're overly drawn to a word, outside, like an extra-biblical word, because we're not comfortable with the biblical word, but at times we're very uncomfortable with those very specific things that sometimes God asks of us. I mean, things that the Bible doesn't even really address, like very specific things, like I'm asking you to go build a relationship with this person, go share something with them, go give of yourself or give something away or whatever. Like sometimes there's those very specific things like Abraham that God communicates to us through his Holy Spirit and we resist him and we fight him. We're like, well, that can't be God. I must have indigestion. He wouldn't want me to give that kind of money away or he wouldn't want me to, to do, like, you know how we rationalize? Abraham didn't rationalize. He just did it. He just took action. And he's one of those that's considered a man of incredible faith, it says, because he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And the second one is Sarah. Sarah is pointed to as Abraham's wife, and you know that Sarah was barren. She was over 90 years old and still had not had a child. And if you go back to Genesis and you read this story, and you read that Sarah really actually struggled with this issue of her being expected to have a child. At one point, she actually bypasses God's plan and she tells Abraham, why don't you go have a child with my servant, with Hagar? And Abraham did. And, it, and immediately it went, it went sour. It was bad. It was a bad story. It was a difficult story of a lot of pain and a lot of misunderstanding and hurt feelings. And eventually uh, Hagar is, is driven out completely. Sarah struggled with this. How is she supposed to be the mother of nations when she can't be the mother of one? And then there's this story of how these angels come in human form and they again remind Abraham of the promise that Sarah is going to bear a child. And it says she laughed within herself. Like there's this cynicism in, in these angels because God revealed it to them. They knew it and they said, why are you laughing? She's like, I wasn't laughing. She said, oh yes, you were laughing. And there is a point, though, where Sarah does receive it in faith. And I like how the writer of Hebrews describes Sarah's response to this. Because it says that by faith, Sarah, in verse 11, herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered God's promises faithful. Actually, that's not what it says. What, she, what it says is that since she considered him faithful, who promised? And I'm glad it says it that way. Those who God has prepared a city for are people who trust him. Sarah 
at some point got her eyes off of the baby that was not showing up and put her eyes on the God who promises. It doesn't say she considered the promises faithful. It says she considered him faithful. And that that was the key to her faith, was to look fully at who her God was and then move forward with the confidence based on that. Now, Sarah was very human, and she had to be a normal mom. And can I just, just for a couple moments, talk to young moms? I know there's a bunch of them here. You're not the first one to battle insecurities and doubts and struggle. And how is this going to go? In fact, I think that being a mom is actually impossible. Think about what you're asked to do. You're asked to give yourself to carry this little baby for nine months as it grows, and you've never met him or her, and then you're asked to go through the pain of bringing that child into the world, and then you're going to give up all of your sleep. Well, not all of it, but it's going to come in weird places. And, and somehow, in the process of the next 20 years, you're hopefully going to take that little baby and nurture him or her until they are a man or woman that's the kind of man or woman that you were hoping they would be. And the pressure is immense. Now, it's immense on dads too, but I'm picking on moms because of Sarah. And that pressure doesn't just evaporate magically at some point. It's just there. I'm not a mom, so I would appreciate it if a few of you would nod your heads to, to acknowledge that this, is, that this is a real thing, okay? Because <laughs> I talk to moms. I'm married to a mom. I now have a daughter that's a mom. Um, Sarah was normal. And so are you. And so am I. It's not just a mom thing, by the way. Like, that's kind of life, isn't it? Where we look at what God has set in front of us, and it just looks impossible. The task looks impossible. And in fact, the quicker we figure out the impossibility of the task, the better position we are to take the task ahead. Let me say that again. The quicker that we figure out the impossibility of the task, the better equipped we are to take it. And at some point, I think Sarah understood that it is physically impossible for her to bear a child and that she could keep sort of doing the locker room, you know, pump you up speech of, well, God has promised and victory in Jesus and God is good all the time and all the time God is good and, and she's, you know, trying to, and at some point it just starts to fall flat because it begins to look more and more and more and more impossible. As the days turn into months and the months turn into years, she begins to realize that this is an impossible task for her to have a baby when she can't physically do it anymore. And so 
it's going to take a miracle which brings up this huge dilemma. Do I or do I not trust the one who makes the promises? Because the, the answer to the question of whether you trust the promise is tied to the first one. Do you trust the one who promises? Because when people make promises and they don't follow through on the promises, what happens? We lose trust, don't we? But what are we supposed to do when God doesn't follow through on his promises? And let's be honest. Let's, I mean, this is real talk. We've lived this. We've had some things that we really thought God was going to come through on. That loved one that we thought was going to be healed. That child that we thought was going to, you know, cure cancer. And, and then they don't. I mean, these lofty grand expectations. And we can somehow attach the voice of God to them and create them as his promises. That's one thing. But then what about the stuff that he really actually promises? Like he promises... I will be with you always. Matthew 28. Last thing he says right before he ascends into heaven, he says, I will be with you always. And then we go through seasons where it's like, I don't feel God anywhere close. What's up with the promise? Seems like he's a long, long way away. Well, Sarah, Sarah wrestled with them. And what Sarah did is described in Hebrews 11 is exactly what you and I are called to do in that moment, and that is to trust in who is making the promise. Trust in him. Does it answer all the questions? No, but it answers the big one, and that is, can my God be trusted? Will I allow him to fulfill his promises in his way and his time? Because immediately after it says that about Sarah, what does it say? It says, these all died in faith, verse 13, not having received the things promised. Here is a group of people who they were so convinced of the promises of God that there was a better city prepared for them and that there was even a Messiah who was coming and they lived their lives day to day based on the one who had promised and the integrity of the God who made those promises, even though they didn't see the promises. You and I do not necessarily need to see everything work its way out in a way that we understand in order to place our faith and our confidence in the one who makes the promise, because he is always faithful and he is trustworthy and he has proven himself to be that throughout history, and he will always be faithful and trustworthy. The question is, do you believe in that God? Do you personally take the issues and the, the impossibilities of your life and do you hold them in light of the impossibility or do you hold them in light of who God is and who our God is in his nature and his character? Thirdly, they travel light. God has prepared a city for those who travel light. I love the thing that it says about them. It says that they had acknowledged in verse 13 that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They were living in tents. You can't pack much when you're taking a tent. You can't carry a lot along with you. You can't carry a lot along with you. Yeah, that's the right way to say that. Because you're traveling. Because you're always on the move. And you got to keep moving because you're not home yet. And so you travel light. But once we get home, oh my goodness, then we start to accumulate. We get, you know, more knickknacks and better stuff and 
Eventually, you know, if you've lived in a house long enough and you decide to move to another house, you figure out just exactly how much stuff you actually own because we just accumulate in our homes. Well, you don't accumulate in tents, but in a very real sense, this is exactly the, the frame of mind that you and I are to carry with us as we go throughout the days of our lives that we're not home, that we're just traveling through. You remember the old song that we used to sing as kids, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Like we're just moving through it. And these heroes of faith had this mentality that as I wake up in the morning, yes, I may be living in a house, but I'm not home. As I go to work, I may be going to my job, but this isn't home. I may be living in this country or this state or this community, and I call it home, but it's not really where I belong. Because the values of my own faith and heart are different than the values of those that I rub shoulders with so many times. And that while many of the people that you and I interact with on any given day are focused on making it from Monday to Friday to hit the weekend so that we can start enjoying life, or they're, they're you know, planning ahead so that we can have a we can get to this kind of house or this kind of a retirement and we can finally relax and we can finally start to enjoy life. And if we hit the markers, then life will start to make sense and be fun and I'll have joy. And the Christian says, actually, those markers are terribly insufficient because once you hit that marker, there's going to be another marker and you're going to want to hit that marker. And so the Christian says, actually, there is one marker that I am aiming toward, and it is that one day I will step into the presence of God, and I will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, and that that's the marker that I want to hit. I'm going to aim everything in my life, the relationships I have, the job that I do, the way I spend my money, toward that one marker, and that is that one day I will go home, and once I'm home, then I will enjoy the fruits of the labor, because I'll finally be at home. And so here's these people, of people of faith, and they're just going through their lives. They say, we're just strangers here. And their neighbor may say, that's not true. You're not a stranger because I know you well. I've known you since you were a kid. No, you don't understand. Because I had this deep faith in God, I understand that one day I'm going to go home. I'm going to be in a place where I'll be free of all of the existence of pain and suffering and difficulty. And so they traveled light. How are you traveling the days of your life? How do you travel as a believer in Jesus Christ? What are the markers that you aim for? Say, man, I'm, I really am hoping if I stay with this job, I'll get this promotion and and that's going to come with more money. And then if we can get that money, why well, I'm really hoping to you know, put an addition on the house or buy a boat or whatever. Great, fine. Do all that stuff. Go for it. That's part of just the living of life. That's not home, though. I mean, the answer is not to become apathetic and to sit around and just wait to die either. Like, we're supposed to live our lives abundantly. Jesus said he came to give us the abundant life, right? So by all means... Have friends over, enjoy your life, 
and do things that just create joy and all of those things. But that's not it. You don't place your hope and your future on those things because they're temporal and because we're not actually home yet. You know, a pastor friend of mine just told me recently, we were talking about, you know, what we're doing with our preaching, and he said, well, I'm getting ready to start a whole series on our identity. And I showed immense constraint. I did not roll my eyes. But I wanted to. Because I wanted to say, we live in a world, in, in an American culture that is obsessed with ourselves. I mean, I think you just, I just said it last Sunday, like, our culture worships at the altar of self-discovery. We're, we're, we're just a bunch of navel gazers. Like, we're just constantly looking at ourselves, and we're obsessed with ourselves. And quite frankly, I'm probably going to get in trouble this, for this, but a lot of what the Christian community is talking about of, like, discovering your identity falls really flat for me. Because it has this, a lot of this, you know, you are great. You are somebody. You are special. Well, of course you are. God loves you. I'm not saying you're not special. I'm not trying to be mean. But there's something that gets missed in that, and I think it's this idea in Hebrews where my identity is that I don't really fit in here, and I'm okay with that. My identity is that I'm not really home, and I'm okay with that. My identity is that I have another city that I'm aiming toward, and I'm okay with that. And that the pages of Scripture are there to reveal to us our God and what it looks like to trust Him and to have faith in Him. And it is in that that the identity just takes care of itself. And we don't go to the Bible trying to discover ourselves. We go to the Bible to discover our God. And he shows us who we are. All right. I need to close. Sermon in a sentence. The best plan for the future is a complete trust in God today. And I would go back to the examples of Abraham and Sarah and just their complete confidence in who their God was. That's the best way to invest in the future. What are you going through right now? What is going on in your life that it feels like the more you pray, the worse it gets? And you don't know why. And maybe even like Abraham and Sarah, it just seems like time is getting away. And if God doesn't hurry up, then you're never going to see the answer to your prayers. Do you know that the writer of Hebrews actually does not present Isaac, the miracle baby, as the answer to all of their faith and their hopes and dreams. Oh, they had Isaac. But he actually wasn't the object of their faith. They had to actually leave this earth in order to experience the fulfillment of all of the promises. And so will we. And if we, if we divorce the hope of eternal bliss 
from the life of a Christian, we are taking something ter- we are taking something absolutely essential away, and it's terrible to do it. We need that. We need more songs about heaven, by the way. The problem is that life gets too good here, and we've made too good of a life for ourselves, and we don't find ourselves longing for a homeland, a city whose builder and maker is God. Jesus, in his, some of his last words in John chapter 14, he didn't tell his disciples, hey, I have a wondrous future for you. It's going to be awesome. We're going to plant a church. Everybody's going to love you, and you're going to be a hero. He doesn't, every once in a while, he gives them indicators that it's probably going to be a difficult journey. What he does say in John chapter 14, he says, I'm going away, and he said, don't be sad, because he said, I'm actually going to prepare a place for you. And he says, and when you come, he says, I'll, I'll take you in. And he's not talking about preparing a place on earth. He's pre- talking about preparing an eternal place of rest for them. A few deeper study questions. Charlie, you guys go ahead and come on up. I want to bring this to a close. Back in 1910, the, uh, Theodore Roosevelt had just finished up his second term as a president and if you know anything about Teddy Roosevelt, he loved to hunt, and he went on an African safari for, I think it was several months or something like that. And he, he I, there's some discussion as to how many hundreds of animals he killed. It's quite a few. Um, and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt was just this guy with all kinds of adventure and stuff. He came home from the African safari, and story according to history, is about June of 1910. And he came home on a ship, and as they're coming into the New York Harbor, and they come in, and there's crowds of people waiting to invite Teddy Roosevelt back home. There's banners. There's a band playing patriotic music. I mean, the welcome home was outstanding, beautiful. On that ship was an old missionary. Um, I think his name was Samuel Morrison. And he and his wife were coming home from the mission field. They'd been in Africa too. They had given their lives to the spread of the gospel in Africa. And because of the harsh conditions, their health was failing, and it finally came to the point that they needed to come back to America for their final years and, and spend their final years here before their death and their passing. And, and there stands this missionary and his wife, and they're standing at the edge of the ship, and they're watching all of the, all the fanfare for Teddy Roosevelt. And the missionary kind of looks at his wife, and he says, this is not right. We gave our lives to the spread of the gospel, and there's no one here to greet us. He goes hunting for a few weeks, and they throw a parade in his behalf. And his wife, in all of her wisdom, she says, it's okay, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. And he talked about it later, he realized that's the perspective of the Christian, that we're not home yet. Because one day, one day this body, this one, will cease to live, and they'll put it in a box at the front of the church, 
lay it in the ground in the promise and the hope of the resurrection. But at that time, I will be home. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will be home. And all of the things that we try to make of this world, don't forget, this isn't home. And we're not home yet. If you're here this morning and you may be fighting some of your own battles and maybe like Sarah, you're faced with an impossible task. Maybe it's raising little children and you're just kind of hit with the impossibility of it this morning. And maybe you just need to say, Lord, I admit this is impossible. Maybe like Abraham, you've just prayed for years and you just are not seeing those answers and you just need the reminder Hang in there, travel on, keep going. You're not home yet. The promises will all be fulfilled because he is faithful who promises. Would you stand with me? I invite you just in this moment to maybe just take a moment to reflect. How are you traveling this morning? You're traveling with a lot of baggage. You're traveling with a lot of weariness, with some doubts. I invite you if you want to slip up front and, and just spend some time with God and just work through some of that. This is always open. There'd be somebody here to pray with you. But how are you? How are you traveling? Maybe this morning you need to take some of those those struggles and those doubts and fears and just say, Lord, I trust you. I believe you are faithful. I believe you are who your word says you are and that you will keep all of your promises. Just give you a moment. Lord God, this morning, um, all of us need that reminder that we are just, we're just living through a very temporary thing here called life. And that real life is actually on the other side. So God, would you meet each person here this morning and just wherever each of us are at with that gentle reminder um, to travel on, to travel with faith, lightly and um, God you can you can help us make all the applications of this I do pray for the young parents here where they just often I think about just the impossibility of their task ahead and I do pray that you would strengthen their hand and that and that they would take the impossibility of that and use it to stay constantly on their knees before you trusting you give you all this, Lord. Thank you.